So we have been in a series of messages of late called Fixer Upper, and the, the connections are obvious, right? We've, we've sold this place, we're renting it back for a little while while we get the Fixer Upper that we purchased down the road ready for uh, habitation, for use, for worship. And as we do this, uh, we, we, we sort of realize there's several metaphors in that process for each of us personally, that God is, looks at each of us as little fixer-uppers, and He looks at us as a church, as a fixer-upper. We give Him a lot of work to do. Um, and so, we're just taking that as a way of sort of entering into and understanding uh, how God operates in this question of uh, fixing up our lives. And there's a, a series of books in the Old Testament, Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah, that take up this question of God's people rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem that had been destroyed by a, a king from Babylon called Nebuchadnezzar. And so we're going to look at another passage today from the book of Ezra, um, just to give you the context. Uh, the God's people had, had not been listening to him or to his word, and God had been trying to tell them, if you don't listen, bad things are going to happen. Like, you're going to lose my protection, and your, your city, your kingdom is going to fall, and you will be defeated. And, of course, that all came true. God's prophecies came to fruition. Uh, Israel was defeated by Babylon, and their, their city was left in ruin. It was just utterly destroyed. The temple was pulled completely apart. They even pulled apart the foundation of the temple as if to say, you're done here. And within the next few decades, uh, another king took over Babylon and his empire decided, he decided within his empire to allow the Jewish people to rebuild their temple. And so that process began under uh, King Cyrus, and the exiles of the Jewish people who'd been taken out of Jerusalem were able to return to Jerusalem and begin rebuilding. That their neighbors, the people who had been around them, like, and had been at war with them for several centuries, didn't like the fact that Jerusalem was being rebuilt, that all, this, all these resources and opportunity was being given to one people group and not their people group, and they began to resist the rebuilding efforts. And then that resistance led to a cessation of building. They had to cease building for about 10 years, and then building is renewed. There's a little timeline in your bulletin at the end of the sermon outline. If you'd like to have the dates to associate with these things, just a little timeline to kind of help you get your mind around both the span of time and the the events within that timeline. So that's kind of the bigger context. We come to a passage today where work resumes and then about four years later uh, concludes and the temple is, is finished, sort of. Uh, it's finished enough that, it's, that it exists and it can function as the temple for God's people. And so they, they throw a party and a, a worship service and, and we're going to look at that and the implications that it has for us, and I have to also warn you, there is a, um, let's call it a PG-13 portion of our passage today, and I was actually, so I, I send out the scriptures ahead of time to our worship team leaders 
to Jason and Lois, and uh, I, I asked Lois for some feedback on this. I'm like, this is kind of an extreme little snippet. With Do I need to edit differently? She goes, oh, no, no, no. Leave it there. The teenage boys need something to chew on. This, they'll love this. So throw them a bone, man. They'll love this. So there's, it's a little crazy. Um, it's sort of a, this is how ancient kings remained king. They did stuff like this, all right? So, it, it, you know, this is sort of Machiavellian textbook. This is how you remain king. You do this to people, they don't mess with you, all right? Uh, so we're going to just read this passage. Um, I'm in Ezra chapter 6. Um, The people who had stopped the construction had sent a letter to the king saying, make them stop. The king stopped them. And then the Jews sent a letter to the king and said, no, 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 no. An earlier king said we could do this. So King Darius goes through the records, digs up the file that uh, said, yes, we give permission for Jerusalem to be rebuilt. And, And then he says you can go ahead and start. And that's where we're picking up. Uh, I've got just a a clip from Ezra chapter 6, verse 1, and then we're going to start reading 6 through 22. Then Darius the king made a decree. Now therefore, Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled upon it. Hmm. Now I lost my place. That's so exciting. I, um, and, and his house shall be made a dunghill. There go the property values for his neighbors. I'm just saying. They're going to be mad. Um, sorry, beginning back in verse 12. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree, let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did all, did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. 
and the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and as a sin offering for all 12 for all Israel, 12 male goats according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. On the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean, so they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had returned the heart of the king of Assyria to them so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel." We will see throughout this series themes that recur as we see those same themes in our lives that recur. And some of those are the, the mystery of God's sovereignty, the fact that God is in control of this universe, and yet we don't always get it. His timing can be incredibly frustrating. His methods can be incredibly frustrating. The evil that he allows to unfold on this earth can be incredibly uh, baffling and, and heartbreaking. And yet, God is in control. He is directing our hearts and our lives, ultimately, as we see in this passage, toward his glory. And so, we are part of the same process that these people were involved in. And if you think about everything that they went through in these 70 years without their church, 70 years without God's house on this earth, and the waiting, and the pain, and the struggle, and the sadness, the heartbreak of loss, and the hope of restoration, and then seeing that hope broken as another king orders that the work be stopped. And then, by some miracle of God's grace, a new king comes and looks back through the records and says, let's do this. This is the right thing to do. This is the house of the God of Israel. Let's get it rebuilt. And just the roller coaster of what God's people went through over that 70-year period. And then we come to this place where the word joy, if I counted correctly, occurs three times just within a few, past, through a few verses. And it's a, it's a thematic burst into this sad history that God, yes, he did show up. He did come through. He did bring forth his will in the midst of opposition. And so 
we have these same truths in front of us for our own lives. And I would like us to look today, where we've been throughout Fixer Upper, we're using different parts of uh, renovation of, of a building to look at the way God wants to renovate our hearts. So today, uh, Carl, is there a kitchen in the new building? No. No, there is not a kitchen in the new building. Is there a food prep area in the new building? Yeah, there will be. There will be a food prep area. Do not say the word kitchen. It triggers a whole other line of inspections. We do not have a kitchen. We will not have a kitchen. We'll have a food prep area, right? Um, We're going to look at the way that these spaces in our homes, in a house, uh, where, where food is, is prepared for our nourishment. God is also preparing spiritual food for our nourishment through his word and his son and things like communion to nourish and, and encourage our souls and then to leave space in the renovation for a place to fellowship, to have fun, to enjoy being part of God's family, a place for a party. And so today, that's what we're going to look at. And there are a couple of things in, in, this, in this series and in our lives that I'll, I'll sort of begin with. It is sometimes difficult to understand God's will, to perceive God's will, to know what, he, what it is that he wants from us, other times it's crystal clear. Other times it's, it's really, uh, I, I was, we were very blessed when this whole question of selling this property and paying off our debt and buying this fixer-upper came on the table. Our congregation actually voted unanimously. I, I told some of my fellow pastors at a meeting about that vote, and they were all just like, You're, there's no way. There's, that just doesn't happen. There's always somebody or some group of people who oppose the idea. And then there's tension. And I'm like, well, it was unanimous. If they, if they didn't like it, they didn't say anything about it. And, uh, but it was clear, I think, to all of us when that whole thing was on the table, this is obviously God's will. This is pretty clear. And so there are times when clarity comes and things are obvious. And then there's the rest of life in which uh, it's less clear. And, uh, you know, some of you are, uh, have you know, been in that position where you have to figure out where you're going to go to college, and it, how do you know where God wants you to go? How do you know? How do you figure that out? Again, sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes the, the seven rejection letters and the one acceptance letter makes it really clear, but that's not always the way it plays out. Um, I only applied to one college, so thankfully I got in, uh, but anyway. Where do we begin? With this call to follow God's will. You see a God in this passage who has a clear endpoint in view. The path to that endpoint is rather windy. It involves delays and opposition and frustration, but nonetheless, the end point is clear. We are to follow God's will towards what is obvious, 
his glory, his will, his word. Um, how do you know where God is leading? One way is you look for his provision. One of our first elders at Hope Church was a guy named Jim Harris. And the, one of the worst parts of, a, of an elder meeting when your church has uh, more expenses than it has income is the discussion over what to do about the money, right? It's, it can be tense. It can be, there can be different viewpoints. There are different viewpoints in the room. And Jim Harris used to always break in and say, hey, guys, we need to stop and pray. And we need to pray that we have discerned God's will. Because if, if what we are doing is what God wants us to do, the resources will come. And it was always a very um, sobering uh, sort of correction when Jim would do this, but he's actually right. If it's God's will, the way will, will be made clear. The resources will be available. We may not be able to see it from here, but you see this happen in this passage. There's no way that this Jewish community that's been spread out all over the civilized world, and again, this guy's empire went from the edges of modern-day, sorry, Afghanistan, all the way down to Ethiopia in Africa. Think about, that's a, that's a lot of land, that's a lot of real estate, and the Jews were spread out throughout it, and they were not in a position of wealth or real influence, uh, with a very few exceptions. Um, we'll look at one of those next week. But uh, God provides. He, he pulls together what's needed through a, a kind of a crazy king. But the king saw something in the Jewish prophecies. The prophet Isaiah, like, I don't know, 70 years before this king became king, before he was even born, the prophet Isaiah said, in, this is in the Old Testament, Cyrus will, will, bring, will bring back the restoration of Jerusalem. Like Cyrus, and, and who does that? Who names a future president who hasn't even been born yet? And so along comes Cyrus, and someone probably brings this to his attention. Like, hey, you've been mentioned before. These Jewish people, they knew you were coming. How is that possible? And so he, they, God has Cyrus's attention because his name was in a book that was already written before he was born. And so, all right, along he comes and he rereads a previous edict from another king and says, yep. We're going to keep rebuilding this. And so the resources come. It's one of the ways we know it's God's will. We look for the provision in the people that he stirs, like Cyrus or some other unsuspecting person in your life, and in the resources that he gathers. We look for his provision, and we continue to work toward his glory. The, the purpose for which this rebuilding was taking place was to re 
build the temple. This is the temple that the Messiah would need to be dedicated in when he was a baby. It had to be rebuilt, and God understood this. And so he, he stirred the right hearts, he gathered the right resources, he sent his people to work toward his plan, his glory, his good in the world. One of the ways that we see this happen in this verse is that his people stay grounded in his word. It's according to the word of God that they work and they stay focused on his mission to bring grace and forgiveness and life and hope to all nations as he told Abraham he would do through Abraham's descendants. And so we have these little snapshots of what it's like to be in the will of God, where things come together and fall apart and come back together, and the end is always in view. The glory of God, the restoration of hope, the temple is the place where atonement is made for sin. And so to see that rebuilt is the, is the re-establishment of hope in the life of God's people. And so we, we follow, we seek to follow God's will, and we seek to express our gratitude. So what verse had the impalement? Let me put my glasses back on. 11. Okay. So I skipped the best sermon illustration of the year. I'm going to go back a little bit. So anytime I see a word in the Bible like dunghill, all right, it's in the passage, it's in the Bible, I can say it. I know. I get out my laptop, I open up this nerdy Bible study software thing called Accordance, I pull up the passage, I pull up the Hebrew, and I scroll over the Hebrew word, and it gives me the root of that word and the definition, and you can look it up, you can hit click, and it pulls up a dic the Hebrew dictionary that tells you what the, the, the origin of that word is, right? And I'm looking at the word, and I'm like, is it a hill or is it a hole? Because the, the word that's used, it's actually not a Hebrew word, it's an Aramaic word, so it's more of a, a slang word than it is a technical word. And it means either a sink or something really, really foul, stinky, all right? But the Aramaic word seems like to indicate something that is concave rather than convex in nature. So I'm thinking, and I'm like, how am I going to figure this out? I only know one guy who's been fully immersed in a culture in modern times, in, in current times, that is actually extremely similar to the cultures of these places in the Bible. So I, I called my friend John, who's sitting right over there. You're, you're, this is great, John. Just thank you, by the way. Um, and actually, I texted him, and I said, hey, 
in, in your travels in rural Afghanistan and Iraq, can you give me any insight into how tribal people deal with human waste? He says, text back, he says, unfortunately, I can. <laughs> now you have my attention. And I say to John, I'm like, okay, help me out here. Um, what do they do with it? He goes, they make a little hill outside their village. I'm like, is the hill hollow and they dump into it? He texts back, nope, it's solid <laughs> all the way through. And as I'm sitting there asking myself the question, John, how do you know this? He, he follows up the text and he says, we left a forward operating base with, I'm assuming, some special forces guys or something, and uh, they are told to do some reconnaissance over a village. His point man sees high ground. <clears throat> I don't think John was laughing. I'm just saying. So in, the, in defense of the point man, I mean, he just got out of his little school where they tell you, like, find the high ground. So he's like, textbook, baby, there's a little knoll. We're going to set a camera up there. We're going to do some recon. Let's go dig in, boys. <laughs> and so they get to the position. They realize that they're, they're somewhat visible from there, so they literally dig in. I'm sure that this young point man is getting the stares of death from his colleagues, from his comrades in arms here, like, dude, seriously? Um, but at this point, going down looks better than dying, right? That's a, this is a better alternative. So they, they dig in. Uh, thank you for your service to our country. If no one's ever said that to you before, uh, I don't even know where to go. Um, and so in antiquity, in tribal cultures, they literally take their stuff out to a pile and they add to the pile and then they, they probably throw a little dirt or clay or something on top of it and, and go. And you usually you want to put that hill downwind from the prevailing winds of your village, right? So there you go, a little Bible research for you. Um, dude. And let's just say, if you broke the edict of a king and that happened to your house, your neighbors are not going to be happy with you. That's, that's bad. So, all right, that was part of the follow God's will. Even if it lands you in something like that, uh, you do what you're ordered to do. You follow his word, you follow his will, and, and you hope that it doesn't get you on that high ground, but yet rather another high ground. All right, I digress. I just had to do that, man. That was just too, too awesome. So, um, and, and then you got back to your forward operating base and burned your clothing, yes. All of them, all, every, 
every troop involved in that exercise um, went back to their uh, barracks slightly less clothed than the way they left, but happy to be rid of the clothing. We follow God's will, and we express our gratitude for his mercy, for his provision, for his love, for his grace, for his forgiveness. And so you see this massive sacrifice at the dedication of the temple. You know, several hundred animals uh, take one for the team that day. And uh, really, the Levites in the Old Testament, they were barbecue pit masters. They, they did this all day long, every day. They took sacrifices, they put them on the, the altar, literally had a grill on it. I'm not making this up. It had a grill on top of it, and they would, they would burn the fat in the fire. That beautiful aroma would go up to heaven, and then they would portion out the rest of the sacrifice according to the law of Moses and feed themselves, their families, and God's people through those provisions. So <clears throat> there's this massive expression of gratitude on behalf of God's people, and, and think about it. 70 years, 70 years without your church home. That's a long time. That's several generations of people that have never had a church home. And it's rebuilt. It wasn't very pretty, actually, but it was functional. It worked. And so this expression of gratitude is, is what we are called to, to come under the authority of God's Word, to obey what, the, what is told to us through God's Word. You see the, the, the mention in this passage, and you see this recurringly throughout these, these scriptures, of the prophets who are, who are helping God's people remain grounded in His Word and focused on the goal of God's glory. And so the prophets serve this role. We're to be reminded of that, to acknowledge our own sin and to trust in God's atonement, that he will provide what is needed to achieve our forgiveness, that his plan includes our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. He has literally passed over our sin. Uh, they celebrate as they gather back in the temple the Passover. This is the, the remembrance of Moses uh, leading God's people out of Egypt. The angel of death was coming to Egypt, and the, the Jews were told to sacrifice a lamb and place the blood on their door and the angel of death would not touch anyone inside that door. And so this was the meal they celebrated every year. Even today, the temple was destroyed again in 70 AD, and it has never been rebuilt. And even today, when, when a Jewish family celebrates the, the Passover Seder, they conclude with these words. Do you know what they are? Next year in Jerusalem. That's how they conclude their Passover dinner even today. And so these Jews in this story got to realize that hope. 
that they'd been without this temple for 70 years, and now they actually were celebrating the Passover in Jerusalem. They are grateful. They're come together under the authority of God's Word, and they've come together with God's people to celebrate. To celebrate with joy and to extend God's grace to all kinds of people. Um, so, I'm going to pick on you, Mike, just a little bit. Um, but Mike likes to know what's coming in the sermon series. And so, he'll, he'll ask and I'll provide it to him. And he reads this and he asks me the question, and I'll, I'll have to give you the, excuse me, the exact verse. Verse 21, the Passover was eaten by the people of Israel who'd returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord the God of Israel. If you recall, the passage we read last week, neighbors around Jerusalem asked if they could help rebuild the temple. But they were not circumcised, they were not clean, they were not seeking God's will, they were seeking their own opportunity and fortune and advancement. And the prophets told them, no. You have to be Jewish to work on this building. You have to be in God's will. And it seemed very rude that they would turn them away. And then here, towards the end of this passage, you see how they are included. Those who wanted to come get right with God were allowed to do that. They were brought into God's family according to his word and his will, and they were made part of this Passover celebration. We, as God's people, are called to do the same thing, to look around us at people who don't look very likely as candidates for God's grace and to invite them into God's family, to be a part of his eternal plan. And so you see so many um, obvious convergences in this passage of things that we are called to do. Um, we will not always get this right. But when we do, there is joy. There is celebration. There is the realization that God is alive and moving and working and driving or directing us toward His glory and His will. And that's what we want for our individual lives, for our church, for the world. Will you pray with me? God our Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the rain. And we thank You for the ways in which You fulfill Your own Word, that You bring about the circumstances that cause the resources to be gathered and the people to be gathered into the celebration of your grace. Lord, help us to celebrate that gift each and every day and help us to extend your love and your light into this dark and hurting world. May we be those who 
share your grace with all kinds of people for your glory and for your kingdom. In your son's name we pray, amen.